Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I am Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution and increasingly in the service of finding a way through to that flourishing future that our hearts know is possible and that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. My guest in this episode has been with us before. Dr Sharon Blackie spoke to us first way back in episode 90 and I will put a link in the show notes. But she's back today because she has another book out and it's recently been reviewed in the Times and I can do no better than to read to you something that Christina Patterson wrote in that review. Blackie is a writer and psychologist fascinated by the interface between psychology, mythology and ecology. She has written two novels and two non-fiction books exploring it, including the eco-feminist bestseller If Women Rose Rooted. She runs courses and workshops on the development of the mythic imagination. She knows her archetypes, knows her Jung, knows her fairy tales, and knows her neuroscience, and is sick of being patronised by men who don't. Not just men, I have to say. I think Sharon is so erudite and goes into such depth in her writing that it's always an honour and an edgy excitement to speak with her because we always find that edge where understanding meets a deep felt sense and then we can explore along it. And we're here today because she has a new book recently published, Haggitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life. And it is, I would say, one of the best things she's written, if not the best. It's a very lucid, very beautiful, very moving, very magical exploration of moving into elderhood And it is, of course, explicitly aimed at women. It's taking the archetypes and the figures of the old wise woman in all of her forms, from European folktales and to some extent mythology, and weaving through it Jungian archetypes and alchemy and Sharon's own story of her very close brush with death. And all of these are woven into today's podcast as we explore them and go down the rabbit holes of fascination with someone whose mind expands and extends far, far beyond the usual run of the mill. So people of the podcast, please do welcome Dr. Sharon Blackie. So Sharon, from your home in the middle of Wales, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful sunny morning. How is it with you in Wales? Uh, It's wet, oddly enough. (laughs) <laughs> and miraculously, I don't know about you, but we've been praying for rain, have you? I am all ready for autumn. I'm done with summer after the last couple of heat waves. So yes, I have been for sure praying for rain, cold, mizzle, drizzle, all of that really wonderful stuff that gets my creative juices flowing. Yes, because I remember in one of our previous conversations, you said that you loved midsummer because it meant that the days were becoming shorter and the nights were becoming longer. And we were heading down into winter. And I, I know so few people who really enjoy midwinter. 
And I wonder, you don't have to tell us when your birthday is, but were you a winter birthday person? No, I was born actually at the end of June, but at least I was on the downward slope. And it is curious that that doesn't seem to bear any relationship to my preferences any more than the fact that I was born in the northeast of England uh, seems to make any difference to my preferences always for the West. So it's just one of those strange things. Yes, because through your life you've been a West Coast person. And... I wonder, yes, again, because that's where the Gaeltacht is in, in Ireland and in Scotland. And even if we assume that Wales is the Gaeltacht of, of England, then Wales as well is, is that Brythonic languages anyway. So let's not get hooked into language just yet. Although I was fascinated to discover that your husband is now completely fluent in pretty much all of the Gaelic languages. I'm very impressed. <laughs> you have just finished and published Hagitude. Why am I holding it up for the screen? There will be a picture on the website, people. You can't see my screen. It's a beautiful book in all respects. I love the cover. I love the concept. It's called Reimagining the Second Half of Life for Women, explicitly, I would say, although I'm sure that men reading it would find a lot of depth and a lot to engage with. So I want to explore the intricacies of this book, starting with what drew you to write it? Why did you feel this was a gap in the market and why did you feel, or a gap in our knowledge perhaps, and why did you feel that it was a gap that you could fill? I think that at the time that I began to write it, and I began to write it probably in about 2019, if I remember rightly, there were not very many conversations around menopause and elderhood of the kind that are beginning to take place now. But even now, the conversations seem to be more on well-being and health and staying young, looking and beautiful during menopause and elderhood and not on inspirations for actually going through it, doing it fully and maybe actually finding yourself transformed in a positive way by the experience. So that was really what I wanted to write about. And for me, it was a consequence, I suppose, of being in my late 50s. And I'd always seen 60 as a kind of barrier year, you know, not like something radical would happen and there'd be a sudden transformation. But 60, it's like, oh, that's a serious year. Now you're you're moving slowly into elderhood. And what did that mean to me? And what was I going to become? And there weren't any really interesting, for me anyway, inspirations out there. So as always, I went looking for them in the old stories and myths. And I found more than I'd bargained for and just thought, well, there you go, there's there's my next book. Yes. And it comes as it feels like, if we were to look at in in retrospect, a very obvious continuation. After If Women Rose Rooted and Foxfire and the others, you've been exploring myth in your written work and your online trainings for decades now. And yet, as you say, there wasn't a good, strong sense of somebody pulling together all of the archetypes across all of the planets of it being okay to grow old as a woman. And particularly in our fairly toxic, fairly damaged, it has to be said, Western culture, where growing old feels, and you say this somewhere in the book, as if it's it's a penance and a punishment and and that's what happens when you do the bad stuff and the good people get to stay young forever. So to explain to us a little bit about 
where you were when you started writing, because you've done a lot of moving recently. You were in Ireland having moved from Scotland, is that right? Yes, we had been at that stage at the point that I had the idea for the book. We'd been in Ireland probably five, getting on for six years. And yes, it was a kind of continuation from If Women Rose Rooted, using the same idea that there are characters in those stories that can not provide blueprints for living, but inspiration for how to be in the world and also how to be in a very, very challenged world. And as you know, stories have always been the places that I look to for inspiration, partly because of my work as a psychologist, where I um, really focused on narrative psychology and on helping people to reimagine themselves and their place in the world. And stories always capture the imagination. Not everything does, but stories almost always do. I've, I've really never seen them fail. So to me, to go to those stories, to look for examples, inspirations, something beautiful and magical that can really capture the imagination was what I wanted to do. And, you know, Ireland is a place where I have always found it easy to have my imagination stimulated. Yes, because when you first went there, you say in the book that one of the old farmers came to visit you and said something along the lines of, so do you follow the faith of the fairy faith? The fairy faith. The fairy the faith. Fairy faith. And Presumably he hadn't just read your entire over and knew who you were. This was just a question that you asked of people who just arrived. He, yeah, he did know that I was that I worked with myth a little bit. Okay. But um that was just I mean, he was a farmer, uh, you know, a bit of a musician, but but not anybody who had a particularly sophisticated education. But in that part of uh, Western Donegal as it was at the time, it's just it was yes, it was the obvious question to ask because it ran what they call the fairy faith in parallel with Catholicism, you know, so they'd go to church in the morning and they'd go home at night and put a saucer of milk out for the fairies in case they were hungry when they passed by. And it just, it's been like that for a very long time. And it's disappeared in some parts of Ireland, of course, but not all of them, as I found. Yes, clearly. And there, you mention, along with the mythology of people who are clearly mythological in the book, some stories of women whose histories have come down to us and some of them who were healers who I think probably like homeopaths in the modern world they'd be everybody's last resort and their first question would be what have you done to upset the fairy folk in the area and I'm really let's just explore this we'll come back to the book in a bit but did you have a sense when you were in Ireland and perhaps in the west of Scotland and perhaps now in Wales of connecting with that First of all, the fairy faith as a faith, and second, with whatever it is in the land that takes that label. Does that make sense as a question? Yes. I mean, really, the fair, what they call the fairy faith now would be a kind of, if I can put it that way, and I don't mean it in a negative way, a kind of degraded down through the centuries perspective on the old mythology of the gods, you know, the Tua de Dan and the Bridgets, the Morrigans and, and so on. And at, at some point, it's got a very long story short, at some point in history, those gods began to be called the fairies. So it's a kind of continuation, but it has been a little bit downgraded. Now, these are not twinkly little fairy creatures. These are tall, you know, sometimes dangerous, very serious beings. And yes, I think the 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 Scottish and the Irish parts of my heritage, which are quite a lot of it, certainly the majority of it, always lead me to those particular wild and bleak 
and very dramatic locations where I can find that connection with the land and with the other world that Irish and Gaelic mythology tells us is completely embedded in the land, I can find it there. I find it much harder in Wales, but that's a that's a different story. Um, and that's where my impetus, I think, to go and research old women in European mythology came from, because, of course, in the Gaelic culture, we have this wonderful character, the Caliach, which literally means the old woman. And she is she is kind of the land personified. She is portrayed as the creator and shaper of the land, not the creator and shaper of the world, because we don't unfortunately have a creation myth left to us, but the creator and shaper of the land, and particularly in the rocky and wild places. So in a sense, for me, she personifies everything that I love about that kind of geology um, and those particular places, the language, the culture, the fairy faith, the mythology that it, that we find in, in those parts of the world. And when you're in Scotland, you're in the very west of the Western Isles of Scotland, you found a particular rock that's the cult, that you called the Cailliach. Can you tell us a little bit about the finding of that and why it seems special and then about what happened when you left? Just because in terms of engaging with the land, it struck me that that was really deep and profound and personal and moved into that area of magic interaction that our Western left hemisphere brains don't really engage with very well. Well, when I moved to the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides, there was a great residue of stories about the Kaliuch there. So there were lots of place names that were named after her. There were lots of mountains that were named after her. And there was a tradition, particularly in that part of the world, of being able to see the shape of reclining females in the in the shape of mountains. So there's a very famous one, the Sleeping Beauty Mountain, um, which is visible from Callanish, the stones on the Isle of Lewis, and it looks like a woman lying down in the landscape. She's called the Sleeping Beauty in English, but in Gaelic, her name is Caliacli Monchuk, which basically means the old woman of the moors. So interesting that the old language retains that respect for the old woman in the in the place name. So there, there were lots of examples of the Kaliak and I began to be very interested inevitably um, in her folklore and in those places and we had a reclining figure in the mountain directly opposite our house so I was kind of attuned to the fact and I uh, that there were these characters in the mountains and I do I'm a bit of a paradigiac I do tend to see faces and shapes and figures in things and one day I happened to cross um, a place that I subsequently called the rocky place which was down below the headland um, so that you couldn't actually see it from the headland, a kind of second level almost, as if you were taking an elevator down before you got to the sea. And it was a rocky carpet, remarkable place. And I found a stone there, a rock um, at the edge of a cliff face, which seemed to me to have the silhouette of an old woman. Uh, standing, looking out to sea sideways. And I thought, great, you know, I found the Kaliach, there she is. And that whole place seemed to me, because it was very much associated with rock and very windswept and all of the places that the Kaliach in the folklore and the mythology inhabits, 
the whole place seemed to me like a, a Kaliak place. And there was a funny little alcove in uh, part of the cliff face, which was for all the world like a, a kind of a sofa bed. It looked like a giant rock sofa, like something out of the Flintstones or whatever. And it was just human length. And a couple of nights um, towards the end of August, when I was getting a little bit mad because of the lack of dark that there is in a Hebridean summer, I would sleep out there so that I could actually see that there were stars still left in the world, you know. And I called it just laughingly the Kaliak's bed because I was sleeping there and I kind of fancied myself as a bit of a Kaliak even then. To cut a very long story short, after we left Lewis, um, my husband went back. It took us a long time to sell our house and my husband went back to collect some things that we had left there when we finally did about 18 months later. And I said to him, oh, go down to the rocky place for me and, you know, say hello to the Kaliak and all of the um, other beings that I'd found there in the rock. Uh, so he went down there and found that the Kaliak's bed had completely disappeared. So this was an, an enormous lump, very, very thick, of Lewisian gneiss. You know, th this is not light sandstone or chalk. This is Lewisian gneiss. It is heavy. It was wedged into an alcove, and the, the bit that you might think of as, as the mattress had completely gone, and all that was left was an empty alcove. Now, you know, the sea can do remarkable things. I'm very much aware of that. I'm a scientist by training, uh, but that just seemed a little bit too, yeah. a little bit too much of a coincidence to me. And, and I felt very much that I'd grown to love that land. I'd courted the land and the beings, you know, otherworldly or um, physical that inhabited it, and then I'd left it. And I kind of abandoned it. And it almost felt as if that was an expression of the land grieving, maybe, in the way that I kind of grieved for, for leaving it myself. Wow. And did you feel you moved from Scotland to Ireland, which culturally and, and geographically and geologically are quite linked? I, I remember going to Fingal's Cave and seeing the, the extraordinary stone formations that go out and basically link Scotland to Ireland in, in geological ways. Did you, when you get to, got to Ireland, feel as if there was a Kailiach there waiting for you? Had she perhaps come from Scotland to Ireland or had she just stayed in that place and you were without an old woman when you got to Ireland? So the Kailiach really would have been as ubiquitous, if not more ubiquitous, in Irish myth as in Scottish myth. And of course, the texts are much older in, in Ireland. So she was very, very much there. And we landed in Donegal, where for centuries, there had been a strong trading relationship with particularly the southwest of Scotland and the islands because of the sea route, which was very, very easy and actually very short. But I did actually curiously land in a part of Donegal, in a part of Ireland and, and a part of Donegal where there was no Kaliak to be seen. There were no place names named after her. There were no stories that I could find. And I did feel completely bereft. And it took me a while to find my old woman archetype in the landscape. And I did um, eventually. So one day I was walking along the river and we lived near a heronry and there was a heron in the middle of the river and we startled her. It was early morning. I was there with the dogs and she took off and she flew into the sky. And I thought to myself, good heavens, she's shrieking for all the world like an old hag. Yay. And then I thought, there you go. And by the time I came back from that walk, an image had appeared in my mind of a character that I subsequently called Old Crane Woman, who was half heron. Herons and cranes are interchangeable in Irish myth and in the language too. Who was half heron and half woman. And by the time I got back 
From the walk, she had also developed a distinctive voice, and I wrote about her. Basically, I wrote a blog about her for about three years running around the, the winter solstice. So that, to me, is how you can find and connect with old woman energies in the land without having to necessarily have pre-existing stories. Beautiful. So we can, in a way, re-enliven myths and and have them real and and vibrant for us in the modern age when it feels as if myths, it certainly feels to me as if myths can be quite pushed away by the immediacy of, of television and of novels. I would like to go back a little bit. I want to come back and explore the Kailiak and, and other archetypes. But you said earlier on, everybody responds to story. And we're surrounded at the moment in our fracturing and and increasingly divided world by us and them stories. And I wonder what for you are the components of stories that are generative for everybody? Because there must be in the old myths, I hope, I believe, I may be wrong, you can tell me if I'm wrong, ways of finding story that could unite our various disparate factions. So can we unpick story a little bit and what what is it about stories that you are using in your psychotherapy practice and that then become applicable in the wider world? I would say that it is easier to work in that context, particularly in psychotherapy with fairy tales and folktales rather than myths. Myths often tend to be very much grander. You know, their aim is to explain the world and how it is constructed and our place as humans in it. So some of them are accessible, some of them are not so accessible. They can be a little bit kind of dour, you know, in a way. Whereas fairy tales coming from folk tales, by definition, coming from the folk, coming from the people who are living in the world, who are using these stories to inspire and explain their everyday lives, they tend to be a little bit easier to work with, a little bit more accessible. Now, the reason that they are so powerful in psychotherapeutic terms is very simply because of the imagery. So you have these very simple stories that where the characters are not particularly drawn in any great detail, but they are archetypal characters. They are the hero, the fool, the trickster, the mother, the queen, the wise old man. You know, all of these archetypes appear very, very clearly, wearing different clothing from story to story, but nevertheless, you recognise they are archetypes. We recognise archetypes. And then you have beautiful images. So, for example, I used to use the story of the red shoes a lot when it came to addiction, because that whole idea of, you know, you put on a pair of shoes and then the shoes end up dancing you, you don't have any control anymore. Perfect metaphor for the process of addiction. And the fact that you can see something that clearly in your mind that that you can relate it to a story, to a character, somehow makes it all the, the, the more easy to digest. The Handless Maiden is another one. Was she abused by her father, by the devil? There are some versions of the stories where that happens. You don't have to talk about it. She had her hands cut off. You don't have to name the abuse. She had her hands cut off. And then you can talk about having your hands cut off. Do you see? So you don't actually have to use words for something that, you, that are wordless for you. So many, mostly the images and the nature of the archetypal beings that inhabit them. Beautiful. Okay, so let's have a look at those archetypal beings. You... 
at one point in the book discuss, I think, four archetypes that were, were both Jungian and intrinsic to folktales. Can you talk us a little, and, and these are archetypes of womanhood, talk us through those four and let's see where we can take that. I think what you're talking about is the concept of the archetypal medial woman. And this was a name that was given by Tony Wolfe, who was both Carl Jung's lover and his student, to what she conceived of as being the four key elements of womanhood. Now, clearly, this is a very personal perspective on womanhood. They may not be the only four, but they are four that are kind of interesting. So there was the the mother, inevitably. Everybody knows the mother figure. There was the Amazon who was, you know, the strong kind of woman who could take on roles and jobs, let's say, that were classically associated with men. There was the Hetaira, who is a kind of muse figure. It's a Greek word for kind of a prostitute, but a high-level prostitute who is more of an inspiration rather than just a kind of a physical vessel. So a kind of a muse figure. And then the medial woman, the fourth one of those, is the only archetype that is not defined in relationship to somebody else. So the mother is, you know, to her children, the, you get the, the gist. Yeah. The medial woman is very much kind of alone with herself or she's sufficient to herself. And she appears at a time in a woman's life where you're beginning to turn inwards kind of for the source of your own wisdom. So I, it's very much a midlife archetype where you're looking for the mystery, you're looking for what it's all about, you're looking for the nature of your own calling. You're beginning to question, as people do at midlife, what is this all about and what on earth am I going to do with the time that I have left? What are all of these years that are stretching ahead of me actually for? Beautiful. And... What I really liked about the medial woman, because you're right, that is where I wanted to get to, was that almost uniquely, she's. it seemed to me, and, and again, I suspect my understanding and knowledge of folktales is deficient here, but I was struck over and over again by, by the heteronormativity of it, but also the, the way women in particular, from the young girls onwards, were defined by seeking a husband or or how they worked. There was an extraordinary folktale that I had never heard before of, of the stepdaughter. It's always, there's a stepmother who doesn't like her, has the preferred child, and she's spinning and she drops her spindle into the well. And rather than suffer the wrath of her stepmother, she throws herself into the well, because that's obviously a wise thing to do, <laughs> and then has a series of visions, which as far as I could tell, if you boiled them down, were be a very good little girl, do exactly what you're told, subsume all of your own wants to the authority figure who tells you what to do and life will work out fine. And it left me with my head exploding into tiny fragments. And and yet, it, it, that kind of, and she'd been told all of this, that the, the person or the figure who in effect rescued her from the well was was a wise old woman, a, a sort of a Baba Yaga kind of a figure. And that seemed to be the role of the wise old woman, was to train younger women to be very hardworking, polish the floors, do all of the spinning and all of the knitting and all of that good stuff. And then when you've done that, the nice guy will come along and rescue you and it'll all be okay. 
And as someone who never particularly wanted the nice guy to come along and rescue me, that kind of, am I am I seeing this through a particularly warped lens? Yes, you're nodding. Okay, tell us why I've got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that you've got it wrong. On, on the one hand, we have to agree that folk tales and fairy tales, their function is in good part to provide kind of teaching stories, if you like, for how, how, how the local world is and how one should behave and the kind of characters that one will meet. So back in the day, almost everybody had stepmothers, plus most women who'd given birth to a bunch of children weren't alive, you yeah. know, to tell the tale. So you see these you see these situations that are a function of the time in which these stories arose and in which they became very widely disseminated. So that's one thing to bear in mind. They're, they're kind of products of their time. And because we have stopped largely the oral tradition ourselves, these stories have become kind of static. They've become fossilised. They're not growing anymore. That's my passion, really, is to see how can we make them grow so that they are relevant to today's world, not to a world that was, you know, 500 years old and was facing quite different challenges very, very often. But the second point is that they are intended often to be metaphorical. So, you know, we have all of these situations where young girls appear in the story and they are tested, let's say, by the wise old woman who wants them to sort wheat from other types of grain. Now, that isn't because anybody thought this was a useful thing to do. It's because it was about some kind of psychological sorting. You know, you need to be able to sort in your life. You need to be able to discern. And so very often, even, you know, the prince at the end of the story in some of the old stories was really kind of a metaphor for, for fulfillment rather than you must get married and, you know, behave yourself and, and be a good wife to a very dull, probably, husband. <laughs> so I think it's, if you're going to actually find these stories useful, I think it's important to try to um, step out of the, the the more literal meaning and the more historical meaning and just say, okay, wh wh what is this story really telling us about the human condition beyond the, you know, the specific daily detail, if that makes sense. It does. I, I would love to go into that one in more depth, but I have a suspicion that it would be, we would be mining my own psychology and that's probably not useful for the podcast. <laughs> it does seem to me that a lot of these stories involve young girls being given very menial dull tasks that nobody else wants to do. And it is their job to buckle under and do them. And I can see that there may be a metaphorical sorting the wheat from the whatever else, the, the mouldy rye. But you're also sweeping the house and doing the ironing and chopping the wood. And, and you're basically being told your job is to get on with the work. Were there equivalent stories for young men did, that, that I just don't know about because folktales are not my thing? Did, did the young boys also get told fairy stories where their job was to chop all the wood and, and clean the house and, and do all of the menial work? Yes, there, there are many, many stories, particularly in Ireland and Scotland, about farm farmers and farming boys. So yes, there's such a wide variety of, of different types of folktale and different types of fairy story, even within the, uh, the same tradition, that it's incredibly hard to overgeneralise. There are all kinds of stories where young girls actually do very much more magical things and, you know, the wells and the kissing the frogs and all of this kind of malarkey. So, it, you know, the ones, I suppose, that I focused on in Haggitude because I was really focusing on the old women who, as I say in the book, are very rarely the protagonists of the stories, but they are the ones pulling all of the strings. And so it is very, they tend to be, not exclusively, but tend to be very much 
about teaching the younger people skills for life. Now, that may have been back in the 1700s, if you were a young, poor girl of the people, sweeping. But Mm. nevertheless, I do believe that everybody understood that there was more to it than just being a good sweeper, that it was really about learning, teaching them, the old women teaching them the skills for life. And what was rewarded more often than not wasn't necessarily that you swept very well, but that in facing a task that appeared to be impossible, you knew how to bring in the allies. You knew how to persuade the mice to help you sort by giving them a little bit of your daily porridge, for example. So really these are stories about, on the surface, sweeping and sorting, but really about deeper, more profound skills for life, like building a community of people or beings, animals, who will actually help you by being nice to them, by being kind to them, by giving them something in return. Yes. Because there does seem to be quite a lot of connecting with the more than human world, what we would now consider potentially shamanic work or or even just basic earth magical work. And the fact that that survived two millennia of patriarchal Christianity is quite amazing, I guess. And it would have to be hidden quite, quite deep in the structures of these things. How far back, we'll, we'll leave folktales in a bit, but I'm just curious, how far back can we do the kind of linguistic forensic archaeology to assume these things go. Do we have anything that survives in Western Europe from our pre-Christian and preferably forager-hunter past? Or would we have to look to folktales from more recently indigenous peoples to find those? It's incredibly difficult to to trace things back in the oral tradition by definition because it is the oral tradition. Where we are very fortunate in this part of the world is in Ireland, certainly, the stories began to be written down for the first time, you know, back in the in the sixth in the um, seventh century. Now they were written down by Christian monks, uh, who were the only ones who were able to write at the time. But they were done very much in collaboration with the local bards and scribes. And so, for some stories, particularly from the Irish tradition, we can trace how they might have started as a a saga or a proper myth, you know, with potentially spiritual overtones and passed down through the centuries as something slightly different once the patriarchy, Christianity, just the passage of years, had transformed it a little bit like the gods becoming transformed into fairies. So sometimes you can trace it so we know how it can happen. But for most things, if they were in the oral tradition, we really don't know very much about them at all. Certain motifs that happen all of you know all over Europe, like the the Cinderella motif, you know, happens in pretty much every country in one fashion or another. And by looking at where they arise and when they began to be written down and where they were first recorded, you can get some sense of it, but it's incredibly difficult to do. Okay, fair enough. I was I was entertaining happy fantasies. I remember working with Carolyn Hillier for a little while and she had worked with some forensic linguists in Oxford and I have no idea how they'd done it, but they had re- recreated, they believed, the language that would have been around in southern England in pre-Roman times as a, as a forensic linguistic archaeological project. And then she had written songs based on it and singing those songs as a group of women in just in a village hall in Devon made my 
marrow melt. My bones felt different. It was really interesting just giving shape to words that felt as if somehow they resonated in my DNA. And I wondered if that work extended into folktales. But as you say, it would be incredibly hard. And I don't know quite how we'd do it. So let's let's leave that because I could carry on down that rabbit hole. But let's not. Let's come back to the book because there's so much and it's so rich. And I'm interested in the fact that this is both an exploration of folktales and the ways that women have been depicted across time and space, and also of your own journey. Tell us a little bit about your transition from Ireland to Wales and what that did physically and psychologically, because that happened during the writing of the book. I think I was asking myself, not only what kind of an elder I was going to become, but where my work would be while I was an elder. And again, if we if we can mention Caroline twice in one podcast, she has a wonderful line Let's do it. in one of her songs. I think it's Forrest Yarn. Where will you lay your bones, my dear, when all is said and done? And that line haunted me. Was it Ireland? Was it the UK? And I felt very much that I had not come to terms with the part of my ancestry that would be in what we call an um, ogled, the, the Old North, uh, which is part Britain and part Scotland. All my father's ancestors are from the, effectively the borders all the way up to Edinburgh. Some of my mother's ancestors that are not Irish are from the north of England. So I didn't want anything to do with England. I wanted to do with Ireland and Scotland. I thought that was more romantic. Mm. And I didn't relate very easily to Englishness as a history, as a colonial power or any of that kind of thing. And it was associated with my mother, the north of England, where I was born, who I'd had a very, very difficult relationship with. So that was a place I was just not going to go. And the more that I started to think about Haggitude, just in the back of my mind, not as any particular consequence, I just started to feel nagged by the fact that I had not come to terms with a whole part of my ancestry and place. And I just, to cut a very long story short, I just felt very drawn to returning to Britain. Would it be forever? I didn't know, but I felt that I hadn't come to terms with it and I needed to. I needed to, in some sense, come it's not full circle because we spiral, don't we? We go out and we go mm. back in again. We don't come back to exactly the same place. But in a sense, it's coming full circle. I felt that I needed to do that. So uh, David, my husband, for different reasons, was also up for that. So so we came back. So it was very much about searching for traditions, stories that I was less familiar with in a place that I'm less comfortable with and a sense that in some in some way, this sounds awfully self-serving, but that my work was perhaps needed here for a while. Not necessarily where I'd been comfortable um, in Scotland and Ireland for all those years. And so you said about moving just as COVID hit. That was great, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a really, really good choice. And it was kind of very funny that every, the whole thing that happened after we made that choice was very much, I felt as if that old Kalyach was saying to me, hmm, you want to write a book about elderhood? I'll give you elderhood. And, you know, there's the initiation from hell because it was in every possible way. So I'm kind of grateful for that now, but at the time it was pretty hairy. So, yes, we we 
we ended up effectively making a run for it as all ports and borders appeared to be closing down around us almost ended up between houses with nowhere to go with us and four dogs and a cat and uh, what have you. We ended up here in this house on the first day of lockdown and then our, our movers decided that they weren't entirely sure that they were allowed to come and bring up all of our things. So we ended up in this cold, old house in a place that we didn't really know. Uh, we didn't know how it worked because we'd never met the previous owners and we just uh, we didn't know what to do. You know, you couldn't just pop out and buy things because all the shops were shut and you weren't allowed. So that was that was very traumatic. And as a consequence, I suspect of that, I got a full-on inflammatory, incredibly severe and disabling inflammatory arthritis. We didn't know what it was for a long time now. Of course, I do know, which subsequently, about just under a year later, was clearly associated with uh, the lymphoma that I was then diagnosed with. It was all part of some, what I think of as an inflammation bomb that kind of hit me. And it was an aggressive form of lymphoma. Uh, it was really hard to get it and anything diagnosed in the context of a health service which was not entirely operating at its best. And so, yeah, um, it, it ended up being a very, very big, well, just initiation, I suppose. It feels having listened to you several times speak about this, but also reading it again in the book, that this was an elderhood rite of passage. And I wonder, because we're talking with folktales, we're talking in our history, and to a lesser extent in the present, actually a much lesser extent in the present, so few women survived motherhood. The elders were the ones who had either physiologically not been able to be mothers or, or were the nuns who'd survived because they were not required to reproduce. Do we have in our history and our folk tales much of a sense of an elderhood rite of passage in the way that there are very obvious kind of teenage childhood to adulthood rites of passage? Or is this something that you had to reinvent for yourself? Well, I, uh, no, the short answer is no, we're not familiar with any such rites of passage. Probably wouldn't necessarily recommend mine as, as the way to go, <laughs> although it was very, very effective. But that is actually that whole question of how do we how do we prepare, how do we do a kind of vision quest for elderhood is something that we're going to be looking at in the course of um, the year-long membership programme that I'm running around Hagitude because it seems to me that some ways of marking that and of course you can mark you can mark menopause if you have the kind of menopause which is kind of neat and tidy you know where your periods stop and then literally a year later i think it is menopause is officially um, said to have occurred so you've got some kind of physical marker there arguably for most women not all but we don't really have the psychological markers and menopause particularly as a rite of passage interests me but also I think post-menopause a little time after menopause depending on when you have menopause there's another thing that happens I went through menopause at 50 that wasn't much of a rite of passage for me I had symptoms of some kind but it wasn't much of a big change my big change came when I was more approaching 60 and so I think that there are real needs and benefits to to the idea that we think about how we mark those and how we treat them 
as initiations in preparation for, you know, the final rite of passage. I mean, this is a journey that ends in death by design. And I suppose I had a little bit of a feel for that walking through the valley of the shadow of death as I think of it for a number of years, a number of months while I was undergoing treatment. But we need something like that, it seems to me, where we can kind of rehearse what, it, what inevitably is going to come. Yes, because you say in the book, towards the end, as elders, our job is to die as eventually we came to live, always in the service of life. And you are one of those women that I know most lives in the service of life. And a lot of people are still struggling to find that or even struggling to just cope with living and haven't got onto the path of trying to find their service for life. If I think about my mother's generation, my parents' generation, and a lot of the people that I know of that age, it is my projection, but I watch them walk into death with no sense of preparedness for it at all, often in deep, deep denial. And it seemed to me from the outside not having found their their souls dance. And so how would you help people in our era of any age find their souls dance, find that sense of service to the earth and to the world, to whatever it is that we serve, in order that they can walk into death with a sense of clean stepping? Yeah, for me, this comes down to the idea of what tends to be in the kind of depth psychology world called calling. And I write about that a little bit in, in the book. So the argument would be from, from a Jungian perspective, particularly that the second half of life is about this process that Jung called individuation, which is very much about figuring out who you are and why you're here and how you can best serve the world so that in the first half of your life you've done all of the building and the creating and the playing and the growing and you know in, in whatever fashion that has taken but at midlife there is a shift and the shift is a kind of turning inwards not to navel gaze but to question what the purpose of your life is and the the notion of calling come goes right back to plato and probably pre-Plato as well. He just happened to be the first person that really wrote it down, which is the idea that every soul chooses to come into this world for a kind of purpose. I don't like the word purpose because it sounds too much like doing, but, you know, with that caveat, comes here to, to be something, to reflect something, sometimes even perhaps to do something, but with a gift to give the world. And the argument, I think, of the way that I see it would be that there are two purposes that are intertwined in the soul's journey through the world. One is that we have as a soul to grow. So that's a kind of individual thing. But the second thing is that we came here to offer the world a gift. It can be a seemingly very, very simple thing. Making a beautiful garden in this context is not, um, is not a, a minor thing. It doesn't have to be grandiose, but the point is that it, I do think of it like a garden. So in a garden, you have all kinds of different flowers and every flower is a unique um, expression of what a garden can be. And that's what we are as humans in this lovely old tradition. Every one of us has a particular way of being human, a particular way of flourishing, a particular way of 
giving something to the world, whatever that might be. And the second half of life, it seems to me, is absolutely the time when we do that. So if we begin with a kind of interrogation around what is it, that gift? You know, what what, what is it that we uniquely bring? And it, again, realising it doesn't have to be anything grandiose or spectacular. What is it that that is unique to us? What what have we got to offer the world? And it is unique to everybody, which is why I liked in the book providing the templates, if you like, over over so many different archetypes, because everybody's in a hag, if I can use that term that I use in the book, is probably very different because it's a reflection of who you are as a unique individual in the world. Yes, particularly if you happen not to identify as a woman, your inner hag is going to be really different. But <laughs> yes, so this brings up a lot of questions that, again, probably reflect my ignorance of mythology and the past. My sense looking at the generations that preceded us is that a lot of them didn't have the opportunity, not necessarily just because women died young, everybody died young, but because of the nature of colonial culture, that they didn't really have a chance to explore what their gift might be. I have, looking around, it feels that our generation, those of us who are heading into our sixth decade now, basically the boomer generation, if we're going to use young person narratives, are almost unique in having had the time and the space and the material inputs to be able, the luxury really, to explore what our calling might be. And to do that in the second half of quite a long life, having either had our kids, if having kids was our thing, or having had our career, whatever that might be, to set us up with the material foundation to be able to do that. If I look at the young people now, they're staring tipping points in the face that mean 40, 50 years from now might be a long way too late for them to begin to find their calling. And actually, they want to find it now. They're not that into it. The young people that, that I know, certainly the ones who feedback from the podcast, you know, they may be 21, but they want that calling now. They don't want to wait 20 or 30 years. Um, and I wonder, are there within the mythological archetypes or within any of the structures of the things that you teach, help for young people to move into a calling sooner than the second half of life? Does that make sense as a concept and a question? It makes sense as a question. I think I think as a concept, it kind of misses the point, if you'll forgive me for putting it that bluntly. Uh, first of all, I want to say that calling is not about saving the world. Somebody's calling might be to try to save the world. Greta Thunberg's clearly is. But calling is different for everybody. So the circumstances of the planet and the society and the culture in which it operates are kind of by the by, in, in a way. Calling is also very much, at the risk of sounding cliched, a journey, not a destination. So you can't choose to, you, you can choose to have a vocation when you're young, which is a little bit different. Vocation sits somewhere between, you know, career choice and calling. You can choose to think, oh yes, I have these gifts here right now, I'm going to go out and use them in order to make the world a better place, again, if I could put it simplistically. But calling is a little bit deeper than that. It is about very much becoming intimately familiar with who you are as a soul, with with what the real deep qualities are. And you can't do that when you're young. 
And one of the beauties of menopause, I think, for women, you can get, sorry, that's a little bit, probably too much of a sweeping statement. You can get some glimpses of it, of course you can. But I think until you have been through the testing pot of life over and over again, you don't necessarily know exactly what it is that you are made of and what survives when everything else is stripped away. And that is what the second half of life to me is kind of about. And for women, menopause does that for us. So in the book, I describe it as very much an alchemical process. And in alchemy, the substance went under underwent many, many different processes, but one of them, calcination, which is basically stripping away to the bone or to even to the ashes, what is left when everything else is burned away. And I do think that that, is, that happens over time. And maybe some people will come to it younger and some people will come to it later, but I don't think it's something you find in your 20s. I think you can have you can have glimpses of it, of course, you know, you can have glimpses of it in your teenagehood if you particularly, if you've led a, a, had a challenging childhood and difficult experiences, but it really seems to me that it is a process of maturation. Okay. So I completely get that the alchemical process that you described beautifully in the book is, is in a large part physiological, that, that life is the way life is and we have our Paleolithic emotions and medieval institutions and the technologies of gods, but we also have bodies that the primary of which goes back hundreds of thousands of years. And so for young people listening who may not be seeing an elderhood happening and yet want a sense of moving through the rites of passage of their own ages and of finding a calling in a way that would prepare them for the elderhood that you talk about, where we are in service and have found our calling, how would you help them to navigate that route? I think one of the things that we have to begin with is in some way helping younger people to understand that this is the route. Because obviously our culture, which is so focused on progress and acquiring stuff, um doesn't have this sense of developing our calling or what you so beautifully call the soul's dance as something that we are intended to do. It doesn't even see it as an optional extra that one can choose to do. So we're told that what we need to do is to acquire a lot of stuff in an ideal world, and of course most people do not live in an ideal world, pay off the mortgage, retire at 60 or 65 and go off on world cruises or play golf a lot and then tick box, you know, done. And I think one of the main things, and of course, a lot of young people are, are, are way too smart to fall into that trap. They know that there is something more, but that's the map that the culture provides. And so you're absolutely right to, to raise that question. How do we provide a different kind of map? And gosh, that's a huge question. And to, to, to put it, to put it very briefly, I'd say by, certainly by us providing inspiration from what we do, by making them aware, the wider culture aware of stories which can provide inspiration and myths which can provide inspiration, 
by looking and educating people about the different types of calling so that it isn't all about, you know, what job you do or whether you get to save the whole planet, but can be something that looks on the surface to be very small. But Mm. none of us know the consequences of our actions and who we are and what we do. And the one thing that it always seemed to me that I always stress about calling, I think you know that you are in line with your calling when you stop being attached to outcome in some way. And by that, I don't mean that you stop caring about whether the world around you dies, but that you are so much living what you can do, what you love to do, what you were made to do and are here to do, that it doesn't matter. You don't have to count the numbers. You don't have. And I did that for so much of my life. I would, you know, do guided meditations and visualizations and meet an old woman in a cave and say, how many do I have to save? And that's just the wrong question. It's the wrong question because it doesn't matter how many. Sometimes it's just the one. So I think these kinds of conversations we need to be having as older women amongst ourselves and we need to be figuring out a lot of stuff for ourselves that we can then use to draw younger people at all stages of their life into these conversations so that they're having them earlier. And there is a sense that you are going into life with the concept of a calling and a gift to bring the world. And you don't have to wait, you know, till you're as old as we are to figure out that this might be a thing. Brilliant. Not that either of us have done that, but a lot of women, of course, do to get to a fair, ripe old age. Yeah, because the dominant culture has given them other things to focus on. And and I think our dominant culture also, one of the unwritten rules is don't get old. And what you've done with Hagitude is explore the beauty and the magic and the wonder and the Yes, I want to be that. And providing an enriching and livening and magical role model of elderhood, of women's elderhood, but of elderhood in general, for everyone to look towards and think that, I want that, seems to me to be one of the great gifts of this book. Were you thinking towards that as you were writing it, or am I projecting that on afterwards with my usual flair? No, you're absolutely right. I, I was thinking that. I wanted people to be inspired to think that there could be something quite magical after menopause, if we just take that as a, you know, a, a handy uh, midpoint for, for, for many people or change point for many people. I wanted to for people to feel that this was not the end, that they didn't have to become invisible if they didn't want to be, or they could become invisible if they did, depending on the nature of their inner hag, but that this wasn't inevitable. So yes, I wanted to inspire, but also without being too gloomy, I also wanted people to understand that certainly I think as you enter into later stages of elderhood, it is a process also of continually letting go of whatever it was that you thought defined you. There was a woman who wrote a comment, I think she said she was in her 70s, on a Facebook post that I made about Hagitude over the weekend, who said a lot of people who are younger don't realise that when you get into your 70s or whatever age it might be for you, for some people it's very much older, that everything begins to turn to the process of just physically keeping going because everything's breaking. I'm, I shouldn't say it quite that way. That's that's my words for it. And so everything kind of narrows down to a very, very tight focus, not where you're concerned about your, you know, your, your, your own physical health, but where the options that are open to you are constantly narrowing over time until you pass through that door. Now, a lot of women 
manage to stay fit and healthy way into their 70s, 80s and beyond. But for most people, there will be this sense of physical difficulty and physical decline. And that kind of, that means that part of the beauty of elderhood is to find a way to allow that focus, that very narrow focus to happen, that turning in over time gradually to the essence of what is left Hmm. and to also see that not as something to be dreaded, but something that needs a little bit of preparation psychologically and maybe a little bit of managing. So yes, there's the inspiration and it's wonderful, but there's also developing the skill set, if I uh, if I can use that word, to 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 manage the really tough stuff that can come along with elderhood as well. And that was, you know, very much what my own situation was about, I think. And that passage through illness and looking death in the face was very much about trying to marry those two things. On the one hand, inspiration, yes, I'm all for the journey ahead. But on the other hand, there's this really difficult stuff that we have to marry. Yes. So we're heading towards the end. We've probably gone over it, but this is this is too huge to let go. And it was somewhere I wanted to get to because you've said to me in private and you say in the book that given the chance, you wouldn't not have the physical bomb that you said took over your life. And you were for a while and possibly still are. We are all staring death in the face. We are all definitely going to die. But there are certain physiological, physical, pharmacological effects that you had when you were on chemotherapy that make death feel much closer. And that seems to me, again, a rite of passage. So many of the shamanic initiations involve either burials or you know, nine days, nine nights hanging from the tree, all of the things that bring death right into focus. And the people who survived were the ones who went on to be the tribal shamans and, and the pass rate was not very high. And you've had that very close brush with death and would not undo it. Can you give us a little bit of the sense of how the world feels walking in the shadow of the valley of death, as you said. It's very hard to put it into words. or to It's not so much it's hard to put into words, it's, it's difficult to explain it. And all I can say is that it, it's kind of like a, it's just like a shift. It is like a veil has been torn away so that everything is more filled with meaning. And I don't mean that in a kind of cliched sense of, oh, you know, I almost died, so now I appreciate the world even more. And that isn't a cliche. That, that's also very beautiful. It, it's not that. It's just that it's as if a, another layer of reality kind of exposed itself so that it seems to me that you can only, and again, this is not a particularly profound or original thought, but but when you experience it, it seems to be for you, you can only really live in the presence of death and in the acknowledged presence of death. And, you know, I I used this example, I think I wrote about it in the book, I can't remember how much of it I put in the book now, but the first experience I'd really had with death was when our beautiful dog, Nell, developed exactly the same type of lymphoma that I eventually had, in exactly the same place on her neck, had pretty much exactly the same kind of treatment. So she was very much a kind of uh, walked ahead of me in that. And we were told that if she didn't have chemotherapy, she would live maybe four to six weeks. And if she did have chemotherapy, she would live for a year. Now, for clarity, she 
who's running around five years later chasing sheep in the fields, and she is my inspiration. Uh, but that was the first time, and I know it sounds unusual, but that's the first time that anybody really close to me had, had faced death. Um, my mother hadn't died at that time. My father had died, but I, you know, I hadn't been close to him since he left when I was two. So nobody really close to me had died. And that was the first time I'd actually encountered death in that way. And I said to, to a friend of mine that it felt as if death had walked uninvited into my house and sat down at the table. Mm. And that really made me very cross. Through my own process of going through lymphoma, I felt as if, okay, I have to invite death in and give her a glass of wine and just find a way to not just to tolerate that presence but to see what it has to offer us in the co- in in the midst of life and i am going to struggle to put any more words around it than that but it but it is very much a question of just if you if every waking moment is lived in the knowledge of death or in the presence of death then it just everything becomes more beautiful and more meaningful Mm. it's the opposite of what you might imagine you know it's not filled with gloom and desperation but i think for me the reason why that is the case is because i do feel that i am absolutely in the flow of my own calling and if i weren't if i thought that i hadn't quite found my calling yet or that i didn't know that you know, I'd achieved perhaps some of the things that I might have come here to achieve, that might be very, very different. Mm. But what it did, the whole process, it made me really think about, okay, you know, who are you? What is your calling? If you if you were to die tomorrow, would that be okay? And it was absolutely okay. I did not want to die tomorrow. But it's just like, okay, no, that that's It's not about being self-satisfied with what you've done and thinking that, you know, you've got nothing else to learn. I've got lots and lots of things to learn and hopefully more transformations to go through. But it's just that sense of, okay, that would be okay. And there's a kind of peacefulness in that that just settled me <laughs> in, in a, I can't, you know, the, the, the word that my great aunt used to use when I was a fractious child, just, why can't you ever settle? And it just kind of, I don't mean in a way of being quiet, but just like that kind of, okay, yeah. there we go. This is all right now. That's fine. Let's just get on with it. Let's get on with the story. That's beautiful. There was so much more I wanted to ask. We haven't talked about Granny Weatherwax. And I really wanted to, oh, but Granny it feels Weatherwax. actually like, well, we'll talk <laughs> a little bit about Granny Weatherwax. But that is, that is so beautiful. And it, because there is going to come a day for all of us where tomorrow is the day that we die. There's a beautiful book called Hanta Yo by Ruth B. Hill, because Hanta Yo meant today is a good day to die. And it was what the warriors, Lakota warriors would say as they stake themselves out to face the enemy. And today is a good day to die. Whenever it is, there will be the day, provided we have lived. And it seems to me that you are able to express that in the book, in what you just said, in your other writing, that sense of the imminence of death creates or perhaps helps open the doors to, or lift the veil, as you said, to the the rich magic of life in ways that nothing else really does. Mm-hmm. That's what creates the meaning, yeah. Yes, yes. I, I wonder, because neither you or I have gone through childbirth, whether that takes the women who don't go through the medicalized, let's anesthetize you so you're completely unaware of the entire process, whether proximity to the entry into life in that way has a similar effect to the proximity to the exit from life. I only that 
I find that I become very much more aware of death when I'm sitting with a falling mare or a, a lambing ewe. And I have a friend who has been a midwife into death. And, and again, sitting with other people and being there at the moment when somebody crosses over seems to be another way of lifting the veil. Yes. Let's just very briefly talk about Granny Weatherwax, because we can. Um, partly because also, <laughs> I think Terry Pratchett, who is no longer with us, which is a great, great regret, also was one of those people who managed to create a sense of death as real and yet... And yet something to be welcomed. Yeah, anything that talks in block capitals all the time and has a horse called Binky can't be all bad. And and is there to be en- enjoyed? <laughs> Just before I get to Granny Weatherwax, did you find other mythological or literary ways of envisioning and embracing death? You, you've mentioned inviting her in for a glass of wine. Were there things in the folktales and the, and the mythologies that helped you to come to a deeper understanding of death or was it just a process of what was going on? Um, yes, probably. I mean, we we clearly have a lot of harbingers of death in Celtic mythology. We have the the best known of them being the Banshee, uh, the Ban-Ni in um, Gallic mythology, the washerwoman at the ford as well. So we have death personified almost always in our mythology as an old woman. And I could go with that. There was a time when I saw death as maybe a, a middle-aged woman, um, a little bit of silver in her hair. But I, I would say no. Now it's definitely a black, a black, a black dressed old woman, and that probably would be derived from characters like the Banshee and the Ban, the Banni in Gallic mythology. Yeah, and and the crow. Everything associated with crows was always associated with death for obvious reasons. They're carrying right. birds and they're black. And you, again, in the book, you have a real affinity to crows and hooded crows and, and the other corvids, the magpies. So did they make any different of an impact as you were brushing closer to death? Well, I think I've always associated crows and ravens, of course, with the, the Irish goddess, the Morrigan, who uh, was a shapeshifter who took on either female human form or crow raven we don't know which because of the language discrepancies, uh, she, is she pleased? And so I always would see death probably as somewhere between the Morrigan and the and the Kaliach. So, yeah, cro- birds, generally speaking, to me, I associate with death. <laughs> but this, the birds that I'm drawn to, uh, just purely by chance, everything from crows and other corvids through to herons who were guardians of the gates of the other world in um, in Irish myth- and Welsh mythology. So, yeah, probably. Fantastic. Yes, yes. I remember one of the very old Rosemary Sutcliffe books that I read. The, the spear of the warrior had heron feathers around its neck. And that was always that, that kind of sense of, and, and that which dies is, is thereby carried into the other worlds. Right. So just towards the end, Granny Weatherwax, you've got this beautiful quote of witches and magic. And I love that you're debunking the whole, the witch burnings were millions and it was the removal of the old pagan religions. You, I love that. People need to read the book, I think, to go into the depth of why that isn't true, but that the underlying truth is actually darker and harder. But then there's the other side of our witch mythologies 
that Terry Pratchett did so beautifully. And Granny says, it's all power. It's all, Granny paused and dredged up her favourite word to describe all she despised in wizardry, geometry. But it's spelt with a J, J-O-M-M-E-T-R-Y. It's the wrong kind of magic for women is wizard magic. Witches is a different thing altogether. It's magic out of the ground, not out of the sky. And men could never get the hang of it. And the fact that a man wrote that has always seemed to be amazing. Terry Pratchett was in many ways extraordinary. Just say a little bit towards the end about the wonder of Granny Weatherwax and how she's, what kind of a role model she could be. Well, I adore Terry Pratchett for those witches, and yes, for his for his character of death. I mean, that 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 is astonishing. And what was more astonishing is the way which I also described very briefly um, in the the book um, that they were all associated with the geology of the places that they came from. You know, they were literally were women who were products of the land. And to me, I think that is the first thing that I really loved about Pratchett's witches. That uh, Granny Weatherwax is a granite witch. She couldn't be anything else. You know, you couldn't displace her to chalk. She is a granite witch through and through, and so she is kind of very much a product of her environment in the way that the Kaliuk was associated, literally kind of almost imminent in it. And so I think for the first time I saw a fictional rather than a mythological figure where somebody had taken that idea and actually given it flash. And I am very much a granite person. I don't do well here where I am on sandstone and mudstone. I can't quite get to grips with it. I'm trying very hard, but it's proving to be a challenge for me. I like Lewisian gneiss, which is the second oldest rock on the planet. I like granite. I like quartzite. I like the really hard, difficult, bleak stuff. And Granny seems to me to be a product of that, so that she was not an easy woman, clearly, to be around. And yet she had the most integrity, I think, of any fictional character Mm. that I have ever come across. And to see that marriage of all of those qualities, the integrity, the sense of humour, the fierceness the I'm not going to budge if I think it's right and that absolute ability to be part of the land and then of course her borrowing where she would effectively uh, do um, shape-shifting journeys she would take on the, she would borrow the bodies of birds or whatever animals she wanted to just seemed to me the most for me the most perfect picture of of elderhood i like the fact you know when i grew up the old women spoke their minds they weren't always kind but they were always right and i think that we need to be able to deal with that as a society and granny again is one of the truth tellers that um not is never gratuitously unpleasant or rude or whatever but but just feels feels the need to speak the truth when the truth needs to be spoken. So all of those things and the fact that she is really, really funny just make me adore Granny Weatherwax. She is my role model. I will never be Granny Weatherwax, but I can aspire. <laughs> yes, I think so close because she's so wise and you are so wise. And this is such a beautiful book. And if any book and concept and the course that you run from it is ever able to rid our society of its fear of age and death and look up to the wise people who have gone through the alchemical process and come out the other side, then this is going to be the book. So we do have to stop there way over time. Sharon, thank you so much for coming on to Accidental Gods and for writing this book. It is has been a joy to read and I will treasure it and read it again. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be a guest for a second time. Thank you for inviting me.
And that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Sharon for weaving the wonder of the book that is Hagitude and then for engaging with such heart and authenticity and integrity and intelligence and wisdom with all that we explored. And I do love that we managed to get to Granny Weatherwax in the end because she too is one of my all-time favourite characters. I have put links in the show notes to the Hagitude website where you can find details of the book and the podcasts that Sharon has done about Hagitude. And I've also linked to her main personal website where she runs other courses and also to the Sunday Times review with Christina Patterson, which was spectacular and lovely. And if you can get behind the paywall, well worth reading. So I definitely recommend that you head off, read Hagitude, buy it for any of your friends who are heading into the second half of life, because all of us need to understand what it is to step into elderhood. And that's it for this week. We will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, enormous thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot and for the sound production. To Faith Tillery for the websites, not just this one, but Hagitude as well, and for the conversations that keep everything moving. To Anne Thomas for the transcripts, and as ever, to you for listening. And if you know of anybody else that wants to dance with wisdom and joy into the second half of life, please do send them this link. And that is it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.